Monday night edition of the pod. Game one of the series of the century is in the books, but if game one is any indication, it may not in fact be the series of the century. Golden State 119, Houston 106, the final score. I'll start by asking you this, Denny. What surprised you the most about game one? How it appeared that Houston's offensive philosophy was attack Stephen Curry, attack Kevon Looney, and really that was about it. I mean, so that's one big part. And then I guess you could say the other one is that Draymond Green and Andre Guadalla combined for only eight shot attempts from the field. I expected Houston's defensive MO to be let those guys shoot and let's you know make life hard on everybody else and that didn't really end up happening in this game yeah that's an interesting one with those two guys two three-point attempts between them kevin durant steph curry and clay thompson combined for 26 three-point attempts between them uh nick young actually not killing the warriors was uh something that was a surprise uh, to be sure i think the biggest thing that popped out though was and, and steph curry alluded to this in his comments a couple of days before he said, I'm looking forward to a lot of ISOs from James Harden. And between Curry and Looney, Looney, I, I thought his game was a little overrated, especially in the first half. He's getting cooked pretty badly a lot of the time by both Paul and Harden. But they managed to shut down the other guys. And Harden appeared to run out of steam late, had a bunch of turnovers late. And the strategy appeared to be, all right, you want to ISO every single possession of the game, James Harden? You think you have... A better matchup all right we'll let you do that you get yours and we're going to shut down the rest of your team and yeah you know what you're probably going to score pretty well and, and harden was unbelievable with 41 points on 29 shooting possessions seven assists four turnovers but we're going to wager that you can't outscore us and i would say so much of the focus is going to be on houston's offense and certainly to some degree you could say it was a disappointing offensive performance but i thought the bigger disappointment for me was houston's inability to stop the warriors and they gave up 119 points on 98 possessions a 121 offensive rating 65 percent true shooting and they couldn't force any turnovers which the warriors are prone to as well so that i think was the bigger issue was houston's defense in this game i agree with you and a lot of that not all of it far from all of it but a lot of that goes back to their star i thought harden was abysmal defensively in this game for the most part a lot of the warriors best shots came attacking him either as the man-to-man -man defender or a couple times especially clay thompson beat him on back cuts or beat him to the three-point line he would just get lost and i'm sure because it's isolation and because that's you know the way that the sport is often talked about especially by people outside of this recording is that the isolation the mano a mano but harden's failures were more numerous and a lot more significant because they were creating better shots it was you know curry in this game was seven of nine in the paint a fair number of those shots were created by driving past james harden i thought harden was materially worse than especially all the bigger guys switched on curry but than pretty much anybody and also durant beat him a couple times clay thompson as i said on those back cuts and so a lot of the cleaner looks that the warriors got were because james harden sucked at defense another key aspect of the game and this is one that we did see coming was transition and i thought houston actually did not give up that much in transition the warriors didn't really have those hard pushes but when they were able to run they were extremely effective the warriors 
only ran 27% of the time off live rebounds, which is much lower than they normally do, but they had a 163 offensive rating on those plays. And meanwhile, Houston only ran 20% of the time and they weren't really able to be effective on those. A lot of those were kind of quick jacks from the likes of Ariza, for example. It wasn't their best guys who were taking a lot of those shots. And well, they also, that was some of the missed layups by Mbamute and a couple other guys. Shots that could have absolutely yeah. gone in, but not their best players. Not the guy, you know, Gordon, I think, had their best look on one of those circumstances. Yeah. And Mbamute, Tim McMahon had the point that Mbamute admitted he didn't really feel comfortable dunking. Uh, now, I'm not sure he was going to just like throw down some of those layups that he missed. They were relatively contested, but he certainly has not been the same player. He showed enormous growth this year as a three-point shooter, as a guy who could attack a closeout off the bounce, and we didn't see that at all from him. And I think he is really so important to what they need to do defensively. Um, I thought that the Rockets, I didn't really care for some of their rotational decisions. For example, Capella only playing 30 minutes and not being in the game late. Now, they're already down 10 by the time that happened with like four minutes left, but I thought he was maybe even their second best player in this game. The way he was able to switch, provide some modicum of rim protection, the way he really, I thought, flummoxed Draymond Green as a help defender a lot because he was getting these alley-oops when Harden would come down the lane in two-on-one situations after Harden would beat his man off the dribble, often Looney or less often Curry. And then Draymond got beaten a couple times going over to help, and then Harden would throw the alley-oop to Capella. So Draymond started sticking to him, and then the, the Rockets started getting lips. And so taking Capella out, I thought, really hurt their isolation game because now you're able to help off a Curry, or I'm sorry, help off a Tucker, help off of Mbamute, help off of Ariza, get into rotation uh, on those plays. Draymond was able to be much more aggressive helping on Harden once Capella was out, and Harden had some of those turnovers late, I thought, as a result. And Green, I think, just what he did defensively in the second half, Golden State, really the last 18 minutes of the game, caused major problems for the Rockets defensively, and I thought that Green was certainly the ringleader in that. He was. A a couple of quick points on what you just said. One is gravity, I think the term originated, I think Haberstrow came up with, was the one who popularized it. It might have been Pelton. I think it was Haberstrow, though. And it started out with three-point shooters, but Capella brings gravity in exactly the same concept of defensive attention and spacing in a different part of the floor. And we saw that with, with Green. It was that, that you, the feeling that you cannot leave him open because a Clint Capella dunk has a much higher expected value than a P.J. Tucker 3 or even a P.J. Tucker layup. I mean, that you feel confident that you can recover, make a good contest. And so the options on the table for the Rockets just weren't as palatable and Draymond was over there. And so a stat that I... I pulled for the for the report cards I do for the athletic was in the first half, Houston only had a 103 offensive rating when Draymond Green was on the floor and they had a 118 with him off, but he sat for eight minutes, played for 16. That split was largely similar in the second half, but he played 21 minutes and sat three. So just being on the floor, not getting in foul trouble, not getting a second technical after he got one like two minutes into the game for pushing Harden completely unnecessarily. Yeah, that, that was just an incredibly stupid play by Green. Yeah, so he was able to be on the floor more, impact the game, and he was masterful. And I, I can't believe we've gone as long as we have without really, we've mentioned it, but getting into Kevin Durant's game. This reminded me a lot of game four in the Pelican series where the Warriors had lost, they'd lost game three. They came back. 
I might be getting the game numbers wrong, but it was, I think I got it right. No, it's game it four. It was game four. game four. And so Durant didn't do most of his damage from three. He didn't do most of his damage in the restricted area. He did get to the line six times. It was two-pointers. It was mid-range shots, some f- from floater range. And like in the p- game four of the Pelican series, the Warriors' last road win before this game, he was generally beating pretty solid defense. He was the the some of the toughest shots that the Warriors took and made in this game were Kevin Durant, but he is uniquely capable of handling those sorts of situations due to his height and his jump shot. Yeah, he did get a little trigger happy late, uh, but and it was only two of eight over the last eighteen minutes of the game, but. In total for Durant, 14 to 27 from the field, 37 points. He was very upset, actually, that Kerr took him out of the game just when Nene had come in, and he was really loving getting Nene switched onto him to go at that matchup. But his mid ranger, I mean, he didn't, he got to the rim more in OKC, he got fouled more. If anything, I think in this playoff run, he's been taking more difficult shots than he took even when he was with the Thunder. Last year, he, he got a lot easier shots. But this year, they've run ISO a lot more. So many of these teams are switching a lot more. And the reason that they got him was to be the antidote to the switching. And whether it's Harden, who I thought actually Harden did a better job on KD getting some decent contests than he did on Curry, when, again, it, it's really the lateral quickness for Harden. You know, one Curry crossover, and Harden was cooked on those plays. Uh, but still, KD was able to score over, and he was able to score on pj tucker and bob mute really only guarded him for one possession but because the Rockets switched everything kd was able to go to work against really whoever he wanted to and it was an interesting contrast between he and harden working in isolation but the beauty for the warriors was you know kd was able to keep them afloat in the second and third quarter and then they had clay thompson they had curry getting to the rim as you mentioned they've got other guys handling the ball so it didn't have to be kd going every single time the way it was with Harden and, and to a slightly lesser extent, Chris Paul. And Clay Thompson with 28 points, I mean, he is always kind of the forgotten man because he's not as vocal as Draymond Green. But to give up 15 three-point attempts to Thompson when, in theory, you're switching everything, right? So you're supposed to be not getting beaten by screens or anything like that. But in transition, that's where Thompson really thrived. He was four out of nine on threes just in the last 18 minutes of the game when the Warriors were able to pull away. And also, he played some excellent defense as well, got some deflections late, uh, and they didn't go at him one-on-one much. I mean, it's it's amazing how few possessions the best defenders on these teams were guarding one-on-one just because it was just a total switch game. But I, I thought Thompson was awesome, and he played a, a game-high 42 minutes in this one. Yeah, that was something I, I noticed only post-game was that the Warriors' key players— Green, despite having some foul trouble early, 37 minutes, Durant 40, Clay 42, Curry, who came out early in both the first and third quarters, which is not common when he's healthy. He played 35, Harden played 35, Chris Paul played 38, PJ Tucker played 35, Clint Capella played 30. So getting more minutes from your best players is certainly a good formula. And as much as Trevor Reza getting in foul trouble, you know, he picked up his fifth foul still in the third quarter. I think that did affect Houston's rotation. He wasn't playing so well that I think his absence was a a massive hole for the Rockets to paper over. Yeah, he was one of five from three, but I don't really remember any great attempts that he was able to get. And I think with shutting down Tucker, shutting down Abamute, those two guys did not uh, combine, did not have a field goal 
Tucker, the one point between the two of those guys was a potentially questionable three-shot foul uh, from Draymond Green. Draymond contested Tucker on on another three-pointer as well, forced him into an air ball. But I I really thought that Houston lost this defensively. And yeah, a lot of that was Kevin Durant just hitting unguardable shots. And I think you do have to switch. I think if they can have Capella be the switch guy onto Durant, they're probably in better shape because KD doesn't really want to get to the rim anymore. He wants to just pull up for the jump shot and so you need someone with adequate length to contest him there aren't too many of those guys but capella able to move his feet there uh, might be more of an option i don't think you want to start it because capella also needs to protect the rim as well but if you can get that switch with capella i think that'd be useful so it was really i think clay thompson and then the drives of curry on harden that was kind of the low-hanging fruit that maybe you would have hoped that the rockets could take away but i, I didn't even think the warriors played this awesome offensive game and yet they still put up a, an excellent offensive rating against this Rockets team um what else you got on this one we could talk adjustments but if there's anything else you had on this particular game yeah I had a couple of things so first of all I didn't even notice it we we're doing the game for the Twitter NBA show that David West did not play in the second half in the first half D'Antoni squared up West's minutes, which are pretty predictable that they're going to come at the beginning of the second and fourth quarter, with Brian Anderson coming in at center. I thought that while the Rockets were outscored in those minutes, the quality of shot was pretty balanced. The Warriors actually got a couple open Clay Thompson threes. I think he was two of three during that stretch. And then also David West had a, a basket off a nice pass and from Draymond Green. And they ended up going with an interesting idea. I'd written about the Warriors rotations starting this lineup with a name that I'm still discerning. And one of the kind of questions I had was, well, how are they going to manage these center minutes? And what Kerr did, which is a very good thing, was they said, okay, we're going to close the game with Draymond at center. And I think that was like the final eight minutes or something like that. So they just used Looney because they're like, well, we trust him the most and he's not going to play the end of the game. So we might as well just use him now. And I thought that worked out pretty well for them. And D'Antoni switched to Nene at center at that point instead of Ryan Anderson. Yeah, I thought it was a good idea to match up Anderson at center with David West. Um, and West didn't really necessarily have a place to guard at that point. I thought where I was most disappointed with Houston's defense was during the time that KD and Steph were not in the game. You know, I, I thought, but they also went, they had Anderson out there at center. They had Gerald Green. They went more of an offensive bent, which it made some sense to me, but they weren't able to take advantage. I thought the strategy was good. And then they went with Nene in the second half. I don't really think... Nene gives you enough there, uh, especially on offense against some of Golden State's best defensive units. So I, I didn't think that Anderson played poorly. I might have considered going back to him, but you know whether he just isn't feeling it because of that ankle injury that he had late season. Uh, I think that he, you know, the decision has been made that he's just going to get cooked uh, if you get him onto KD, if you get him onto Steph. Uh, he had had some success switching in earlier matchups between these teams, but maybe he's just not there. It's, you could see it maybe getting unearthed potentially in the next game. I, I'm not sure about that. A um, few other small notes here. Andre Iguodala getting his second foul, I think two minutes into the game, really, as you mentioned, took her out of his rotation. And that meant that the Hamptons Five, uh, I guess I have to say it now because they're using it on TNT, uh is you don't have to do anything my friend (laughs) it's just an easier shorthand to say it it's what it's commonly called uh but that unit only played two minutes together in the first half and for them to be tied at halftime when looney had to play just a, a ton of minutes i think he had to play like 16 minutes in the first half and 
he had some okay moments but largely got cooked by Harden and Paul I thought and to not have Green at center to have that weak link out there also it really compromised the offense as well to have Looney and Green both out there to some degree KD's great shot making helped keep that afloat but then that lineup was awesome in the second half because they're able to actually all play together and still nobody has solved that lineup but I think Kerr deserves a lot of credit for just not messing around going after this in game one not letting the Rockets get confidence you know there's certainly a lot of speculation that he might just start Looney and well he effectively had to in the first half because Iguodala got in foul trouble in the second half that unit it was awesome I think they're plus 10 in the second half and that essentially made up the margin of the game Early on, I had this idea in my head because people had said, oh, well, which game are the Warriors more likely to win of the two in Houston? And I had this idea that they were going to kind of screw away game one. They, I kept on thinking they've lost more game ones under Kerr, but I think a couple of those were game twos, like to Memphis and to Cleveland, I know in the 2015 finals, they lost game two. And the early, early part of this game looked along those lines. They missed a couple of clean looks. Draymond got that tech. Ariza got an and one, and then yeah. Iguodala Harden picked had up a what, second foul. had, what, the first nine points of the game, right? Or, yeah, or I think it was 9-2 yeah. all on Harden points. But, but even then, and I thought so, that Houston wasn't necessarily getting much better shots. Like, Golden State had right. four jumpers rim out Curry rimmed in the first, out. maybe. And, yeah. and Curry actually looked awesome early. I think that's your biggest concern for Golden State, is that Curry looked pretty limited, I thought. He did, and and I said he was 7-9 of nine in the paint, and that that is a positive, but not really being able to do much other than on James Harden. You know, he he got pretty good resistance from basically everybody else that was out there and was able to kind of snake his way in a couple of times. But the other thing that Curry did well, despite, I, so I, I thought about this game as kind of being on the better end of what he can do when he, when he's more limited, was that he didn't turn the ball over. And you talked about that the Warriors, they only had nine in the game. Only one of those came from Curry. Actually, no Warrior had more than three turnovers, while Harden had four, Eric Gordon had four for the Rockets. And the Warriors are so good offensively, and when they're playing their best defensive lineups and engaged defensively, that just not giving away possessions is massive for them. Because if they get up the same number of shots, and this game was 80 to 85, and then the Warriors had the free throw advantage by a couple they're probably going to win the game. Yeah, that free throw advantage was massive too. And certainly Houston, I mean, they'd gone through the first couple of rounds against very, very low turnover forcing defenses though, uh, with having few turnovers. And it's not like Houston was kicking the ball all over the gym, but when they did, and then the Warriors were able to get out and transition afterwards, those turnovers were killer. They had 13, which is more than they usually do, to be sure. Eric Gordon had four, Harden had four. The defense on KD early, it seemed like clearly their strategy was we're going to keep KD from going left or over his right shoulder in the post. And so KD, he loves to go that way. You know, if you watch the way he shoots the ball, he brings up way in the left side of his body. And he's worked extremely hard to be able to go left shoulder, to be able to shoot the jump shot going to his right. And so he just took what the defense gave him and was able to go left shoulder. He was two out of three going left shoulder in the post. And then it looked like they got away from that. And then he was able to get to that left hand for some pretty nice buckets. Uh, So that it was interesting to see him cook that strategy initially. I thought Chris Paul really struggled at times in this game. You know, he, other than when he was able to go at Looney, he didn't really seem to be able to create a ton of traction. And, and he did have 23 points, only three assists. He's the guy that the switching probably takes out of his game the most. And 
then defensively blew a couple of switches that led to wide open threes late in the second quarter uh had a play where he just didn't get back on defense and clay thompson in a five on four was trailing the play and got a huge three that was after that was when clay blew the kisses to the crowd afterwards paul just kind of like got tangled up underneath the rim and just never got back so i thought he had some uncharacteristic mental errors and especially in the second half until the very end really was not able to make uh, his presence felt i thought and, and i thought of all the stars in this series uh that he was perhaps the most likely to struggle and that was borne out to me in this game um the warriors defensive rebounding was very good especially after the first quarter i thought draymond green was outstanding boxing out capella in particular and the few times that capella was close to getting a hand on a ball they had a small come in and just kind of tip it away from him to somebody else i thought that was pretty good too yeah i was impressed at, at the warriors defensive rebounding i it something i i think about sometimes is the way that prior series affect a team's approach and mentality and i think playing both San Antonio, but especially New Orleans, really forced the Warriors to get better and more active on the defensive glass because Anthony Davis would have just annihilated them. Even though, even though New Orleans doesn't attack the offensive glass too much, and that's a big criticism of mine, just they needed to be aware of his presence. And it's pretty similar to that with Capella, even if Capella tries for offensive boards more often. All right, let's talk adjustments now. Certainly, I think attacking Nick Young would be a way to go a little bit more for the Rockets. I think that the Rockets just have got to play a little bit faster. I know Harden, who's looking pretty exhausted, he's got a big burden offensively. And everyone's like, oh, ISO less. Well, they're switching everything. So what, is, what are you supposed to do exactly? I mean, they don't have it in their DNA to run a lot of plays where they're slipping the screen really quickly or where they're faking the screen and cutting to the rim. You know, I mean, they don't, that's not something that they've done. They've trusted Harden to score that way. And so I think, though, if you're going to play that way against Harden, that you might as well just go with more of a defensive approach. I think like Gerald Green, negative nine in 17 minutes. Yeah, he's a good shooter, but he doesn't do much else. You know, he even got beaten for an offensive rebound by Steph Curry of all people when he got boxed out. You know, he's just, especially when you get he and Gordon, I thought Gordon had some important blown assignments defensively as well. When you get those two guys out there, then you want to throw in maybe Anderson too. And you're just, you just can't be solid enough defensively. And so I think to me, their strategy needs to be, all right, we're going to switch everything and we're going to have our best defensive players on the floor. And then we'll just count on Paul and Harden to bring us home offensively. I think that's a little bit better of a strategy than it is to say, you know, we're going to put Gerald Green out there and just you just can't have these breakdowns because this is a good Golden State Warriors defense. They might have a couple of games where they're able to just go nuts from three, but I don't think they're going to be able to put up, you know, a 120 offensive rating every game against this Warriors D. And so they got to get better defensively. Along the lines of getting better defensively, one of the most shocking parts of this game was how often Clay Thompson was wide open from three. Yeah. And that is a that is a failure defensively because Thompson not nearly as dangerous with the ball in his hands. He moves around a lot and he's active, but you just have to have somebody on it because the Warriors are good passers. Their system is, even if, even in the state it was in for game one, still moving the ball around a lot more than the Rockets are, and they'll find him. And it was shocking how often, you know, a couple times it was Chris Paul, you know, getting caught helping. And Amon Shumpert, you know, going back to the 2015 finals, you know, they, they, maybe that was kind of a misuse of resources to have him stick on Clay Thompson, but having somebody on Clay Thompson certainly yeah. provides some value. But, but if you're switching, you're switching, two. right? I mean, that's, that's what they've yeah, done all that's year. True. That's that, that, but the point of that strategy but in large somebody part, needs to be on it. Right. The point of that strategy is to take away Clay Thompson, right? I mean, you can't 
both let KD drop 37 on you almost entirely out of ISOs. You can't let Steph Curry also beat you with a lot of ISOs on James Harden. And then you're also going to give up 15 three-point attempts to Klay Thompson, right? I mean, you got to take away something. They didn't really succeed in doing that in this game. If you're going to do all this switching, that's to take away what Klay Thompson is doing. You know, he's the guy who should be most hurt by that strategy. And yet, you know, he he gets up that many threes. That's really is a failure. I wonder how many more minutes Clint Capella can play. I mean, he's never been a high minute guy, but if it's 35, he should be playing 35 minutes a game because he makes them so much better. Yeah, no, that, that's clear. I, we talked about that a little bit to some degree. And then I think... Oh, I forgot. I actually yeah. pulled this stat. I mentioned it on the Twitter NBA show that I was planning on doing this. And I did. So Houston had a 116.6 defensive rating when Capella's on the floor. That's not great. But when he was off the floor for 18 minutes... 132.6 so that's a jump of 16 points per 100 possessions yeah and they have zero rim protection too i mean if you're gonna play oh, yeah. if, if especially when it's hardened stuck in an iso and now you don't have anyone to protect the rim behind him either i think that's an issue i think you know putting they tried hiding james harden on iguodala but you know they set screens and get harden onto iguodala i think you know having capella guarding a shooter it can be difficult but i think they got to find a way to switch out of that matchup if it's james harden defending you're going to force him into Capella and make sure that Capella is guarding Draymond Green or Andre Iguodala in those situations. Now, certainly Iguodala and Green can be effective slipping screens. They can be effective setting screens for their shooters when they're not being guarded. But, I mean, you've got to find a way to make those guys take more than two combined three-point attempts. Um, I think another adjustment I might go to if I were the Rockets is try to have James Harden use his size a little bit more if he gets curry on him and whether that's maybe in the post or just working in a position where you really force more help you know get the warriors defense into rotation get a, a situation where you can move the ball that might be something that i would look at uh same thing if you want to just have harden go after nick young as well i mean harden certainly played well enough offensively to win you know I, I don't think he was the best player on the floor in this game because his defense was so bad i thought kevin durant was the best player on the floor in this game uh, but he played well enough offensively for them to win. It's just that no one else was able to come through, in part because he was pounding the air out of the ball, but in part because those guys missed shots or uh, just weren't able to attack closeouts very well. I want to see more in Bob Mute still. I, I mean, you got to just make this Warriors offense a little bit more uncomfortable than they succeeded at. I think I would take Gerald Green mostly out of the rotation, give his minutes to, to Mbamute. Mute. I think another interesting development here, we only saw it at the very end of the game, was that at that point the Warriors stopped just switching and they actually hedged on Harden so I think that's going to be their strategy down the end of the game once they feel like they've tired Harden out and let him go ISO every every time but if he is going to ISO Harden's got to go faster he can't start his move against Steph Curry with six on the shot clock you know like it's just because you're not giving enough options right you're basically forcing yourself into one drive and maybe you can get one kick or you're gonna have to go to the step back and both attacking quicker right as the switch takes place going right at the guy or to make your move quickly instead of going between your legs eight million times and yeah you know maybe he's getting a little bit of a rest there but when you're starting your attack so late in the shot clock you're just limiting your options to get a good shot it is antithetical to the mo of their two best players but 
I think the Rockets should be pushing it more when they can. I forgot to talk about this yesterday. Bob Vigaris brought this up with the Celtics, and I thought this was a great point after game one of that series, that Boston just has so many more athletes in that series, so they should just push the ball basically as much as possible. And for fatigue reasons, Harden and Paul might not be able to do that much more than they're doing it. But, you know, if Eric Gordon feels comfortable with the ball in his hands, he can do that. And just, just try to have it in your idea, uh, in your in your mentality that like, when we have an opportunity, we can do it. All the rest of the time, you can pull it back out and play it a little bit more slowly. But the Warriors are good enough defensively that you need to take advantage of the opportunities when they present themselves. I thought we also should point this out. I did this in a tweet right after the game, but the difference, and certainly they had a different offensive load in this game, but the difference between the way Steph Curry competed defensively and the way Harden did on switches and Curry got targeted probably even more than Harden did, but Harden didn't really kill Curry, right? Like he, Looney, he gave up 14 points in 10 possessions against Paul and Harden in ISOs in the first half. Uh, so everyone wants to say, oh, Looney did so well in the switches. Ha ha, Nate, you're wrong. Uh, no, actually he got lit up, but Curry did a lot better. I mean, he was able to force a couple of turnovers. Uh, he, Definitely got beat a few times, but he forced a couple of misses, and he's trying. He's in a stance. He's using his body. He picked up a, a couple of cheap fouls trying to avoid the switch. But Harden just, like, maybe the Houston adjustment needs to be, like, James Harden can do, like, a few wall sits before the next game so he can actually, like, get into a defensive stance. I mean, he just cannot bend his knees and widen out his stance. He just can't or won't do that. And so all it takes is just one crossover from Steph Curry and Harden is just totally out of the play. And the difference between, I mean, Harden in theory should be a better defender. He's got great length, uh, but just uh, is not able to compete one-on-one defensively. And that's the difference when you're giving up a blow by versus, okay, I got beat a little bit, but I'm still on the guy's hip and Curry just getting into the lane for seven layups. I mean, most of those were at the expense of James Harden by my recollection. So uh, that's, that's an, a, Other thing that I took away is just that the difference in how hard these teams competed, I thought that the Warriors won that aspect. And that particular contrast between Harden and Curry defensively uh, was one that stood out to me. Yeah, that's certainly a a fair point and something that will have to improve for the Rockets if they want to win multiple games in this series, much less win the entire thing. Oh, that was one thing I wanted to talk with you about. We might not, I don't want to necessarily put a hard number on it, but I, I said that in my head... I, I think I might have said this on Twitter and me show that to me, by winning this game, the Warriors are significant favorites. That does not mean they are going to win the series, but I would have them at, you know, meaningfully better than 50%, maybe somewhere around 70 if I had to put a put a firm number on it. Yeah, well, I think I already had them over 50%, obviously, as we, I think we both picked the Warriors in, in six, but yeah, and the Warriors can basically end the series with a win tomorrow, or I'm sorry, on Wednesday. Man, that's going to be a long, like, four days off for the Rockets if they lose on Wednesday. No, I I would put Golden State up there, you know, over 70% at at this point. I mean, it's really, you know, the Rockets still have a lot of great three-point shooters, but I didn't even think that Golden State, as Curry in particular, played necessarily their best game. They got into foul trouble early. Iguodala only played 28 minutes. Houston has some ways to play better, but I think the most disappointing part of it for me Houston was that they just couldn't defend the Warriors and maybe we're making a little bit too much of their bad defense I think you know they did well on Curry to only give him five three-point attempts again Curry was not at his best I thought but Thompson six out of 15 and maybe you can take heart if you're the Rockets that Curry doesn't look good offensively but you know you have to imagine that he'll play a little better especially at home he's looked a lot better at home 
in these playoffs so yeah i mean i would have to say the warriors you know 75 percent favorites at least with, with this win and you have to wonder too about the mental game for houston at this point Oh, one other quick point. It ended up not really affecting the game for either, well, we don't know for either guy, but both Curry and Harden had incidents that I want to keep an eye on. Harden went down with kind of, it looks like he kind of had three points of contact with Kevon Looney. I originally thought it might be a sprained ankle, but then it looked like there was something more around the hip area and then also the shoulder area. He had his normal rest, came back in, you know, still had the efficient game. Curry looked like he tweaked, I think it was his left ankle on... A play yeah, in the he, third he was quarter. spotted actually trying to stretch out his calf and getting his calf worked on hmm. on the sidelines. So it may have been that he tweaked the calf uh, when he stepped on the foot of Ariza there. So that'll be something to watch yeah. as well. Certainly, we know that those type of injuries can linger. All right, we I can tease this next segment here with the return of Liam Doyle to talk about the Utah Jazz offseason. But first, this from Candid, who make the process of straightening your teeth convenient and easy. My fiance actually has just started that process. What Candid is, is they make clear aligners sent directly to your home and they're customized specifically for you to straighten your teeth. So it is a very simple process. It takes probably about 40 minutes or so to get started with them. They send you this putty to make those impressions that they'll make at the dentist's office, but Candid allows you to do that at home. They actually have someone with you on a video call to monitor that you're doing it correctly. It's a very hands-on service. They're there with you every step of the process. You mail those in, and then in about a month or so, you get your aligners. Treatment usually lasts about an average of six months, and it costs 65% less than getting braces, and it looks a lot better as well than braces, which, of course, have a lot more of an effect on your smile. So the way to get started with them is with their risk-free modeling kit guarantee at candidco.com that's candidco.com slash cap space and you can save 25 percent on your modeling kit that's candidco candidco.com slash cap space to get 25 percent off the price of your modeling kit once again that's candidco candidco.com slash cap space so let's bring in our old friend liam doyle a veteran utah jazz watcher and Talk about their offseason. Liam, how are you feeling about the Utah Jazz just overall here uh, after their season has wrapped up since we haven't had you on in a while? Well, I think you got to be, you know, extremely optimistic about the future. This season was kind of supposed to be like a rebuild year. And when you find like a star piece like Donovan Mitchell, obviously it's a huge success. So, and especially making it to the second round where they were, you know, in the middle of the year, like 19 and 28, it was an incredible turnaround. So I think they're pretty well set up for the future and, you know, they have some flexibility. They have, you know, good young players in their primes, you know, heading forward. So I think they're in a really good spot, but I, I might just be, you know, a homer. So I don't know. No, I think anyone would have to say that, that the combination of Mitchell and Gobert is pretty impressive as a core under 25. No, but hey, Lakers fans, I shouldn't have had Utah ahead of them in terms of the young core because, <laughs> you know, the, the the Lakers young core sure was getting them to the second round already. Uh, but let's talk about their cap situation here. My most common scenario, I mean, I guess the two big variables for them right now, I guess you could say there's probably three one is Dante Exum. You know, he's going to have a big cap hold of 15 million. They also have Derek Favors, who was making 12 million this year. They can look to to bring him back. But let's just say, start with the scenario of the absolute max room they can create, because they also have these non guarantees for Jarebko, uh, Epe Udo, and Tabo Cephalosha that, that total a little over 
12 million dollars what's the most room they could create if they wanted to just strip the cupboard completely bare with without any of those guys i mentioned well with with those guys i think they could get up to about like 19 that would be waving you know thabo sevalosha yurebko udo uh not resigning favors and get ridding getting rid of his cap hold and Exum's cap hold. And they could also create even just a little bit more with uh, if they wanted to stretch out Burks. Uh, so that would count about you know 3.8 this year. They'd save about $7 million more, I think. Um, at least that was the math I had. So I think that's the number they could get to. But what's interesting to me is like just looking at the potential free agents, I don't even know like who would they be clearing that max cap space for. Like The, the first idea I had would have been Aaron Gordon, but... I mean, he's restricted, and I, I don't see the magic not matching on that. And as far as, like, you know, the top-line free agents, are, is Utah really in contention for that? Like, I, I can't—they they don't have a shot at LeBron James or, you know, even Paul George, really. So I don't I don't know who they'd be clearing that space for. Do you, do you think they could do something good with it? Well, the restricted free agency thing is difficult, right? Because they're really—you're waiting until July 10th, probably, maybe even later than that, to find out whether there's a match on that or not if especially if the team tries to do the thing the auto porter thing with the the physical uh at at sports business classroom uh, we learned about that last year it was right in the middle of that where you can drag it out even longer than just the two-day waiting period so you're taking a huge risk and then also you mentioned moving on from exum well his cap hold is so big at 15 million if you make him a qualifying offer if you just keep him around and keep him on the books and he doesn't sign that qualifying offer, that's a eating up just about all your cap space right there. Now you could always get into using the, the full mid-level exception and, and we might see them do something along those lines. But really, unless it doesn't seem like one of the absolute best guys at the top of the market is going to come there. And I don't really see anyone else, especially because they already have Rudy Gobert. I don't see anyone who's unrestricted where it's necessarily worth other than paul george or lebron james who i think will probably for the sake of argument assume isn't going to come here i don't see anyone and danny liam you guys could weigh in on this who's an unrestricted free agent that i think would be worth punting on favors and exum for at this point well and it's not only punting on favors and exum it's also the possibility that the jazz could have about 50 million in space in 2019 and yeah, there, you know, there isn't really anybody in that middle ground. Like I toyed with the idea of like, oh, you know, if they felt really confident that Donovan Mitchell was their point guard of the future, that that defensively and that he could run the show offensively, they could go after one of the KCP, Bradley, Danny Green triumvirate. But I don't think they're ready for that answer yet. And I don't think they have to be ready for that. And outside of those guys, I think almost everybody that is realistic for them to pursue would be available in the range of the mid-level exception. And if they're not, then that was probably a player they weren't going to get in the first place. So if that's what they're spending, you know, something in the mid-level range, they could, if, if it's a player that's worth getting, and I think there will be values that aren't, I, we mentioned this before, there aren't going to be many teams that use the full mid-level, that could put them in the, about the right place without sacrificing too much of that 2019 space, which is so intriguing with their loaded young core. Well, I think the argument for spending, you know, using cap space this year um, could be, you know, looking at their books in the 2020 offseason, just because they'd still have Donovan Mitchell under contract for one more year at the, on the rookie scale, and they'd still have Rudy Gobert on his old deal, which is probably he'll be underpaid at that point. So I think 
what they could do is if they wanted to clear that space and not sign one guy, but sign like, I don't know, somebody that like two or three bargain players that they could view. And and you guys have talked a lot about how nobody has any cap space this year. And the players that are out, out on the market are really going to get some rough deals. So if the jazz could find some bargains and sign them to even two year deals that would bite into their cap space next year, but the year after they'd still have their books clear if they wanted to pursue a max player. But that, that would be the basic argument. If the jazz saw like, you know, two or three, you know, starter like type players or rotation players that were good value for them at the time that they thought they could add on to you know be a better fit for their core but um i I think i'd probably agree with you guys that it's probably not wise to clear that space this year so Derek favors to me is the real interesting part of this i mean i think exum you know they're gonna keep him as a restricted free agent i think they likely you know they could always pull his qualifying offer if they really have something else that they want to use uh, uh and his qualifying offer is pretty low so it's unlikely that he would just up and take that you know he's going to be looking for a longer term deal and, and we could talk in a second about what that would be but you can always they'll play the restricted free agency dance with them and he can kind of come up with because they'll probably be operating as an over-the-cap team anyway they can just use exum uh out there as a restricted free agent and then if they do find some great opportunity in free agency you can always just pull his qualifying offer and, and there goes his cap hold but favors is the other interesting one and favors you know you get the impression that he wants to be a starter but he also wants to be a power forward and i don't think there's a lot of teams where he can start at power forward given his lack of range he's started to space out a little bit to three so far this year but i think i've been saying this for a while that a big money one-year deal for favors would make sense for all concerned you know something in like one year 18 or 20 million something like that which would be way more than he could get elsewhere and then he can get back on the market in 2019 where the center market won't be quite as impacted and it's just expected to be a better free agent market anyway because i don't see anywhere that he could go unless it's a sign and trade that he gets more than that 8.5 million dollar full mid-level exception and even that he might be hard-pressed to find something I'd agree with you, and I was just looking at uh, teams that I, you know, think would be interested in him with cap space. And the only teams that I could come up with were Dallas if they don't draft the center in the top five or wherever they land on the lottery. Uh, the Lakers if they strike out on all their primary targets and you know use him as like a consolation prize, or maybe Sacramento just because I don't I don't I never know what Sacramento's doing and they have some space. So <laughs> I mean I, I could see that. But yeah, like you said, there there aren't many options, and if if the Jazz do want to hold on to him and keep his cap hold on the books, they really don't have any other space. So I think that's a decision they're probably going to have to make pretty early on in free agency. You know, if they want to keep that hold on the books, then they're basically committing to a team that's going to be over the cap for this year at least. You know, they're going to re-sign favors, maybe fill in some pieces, and you know, work on signing a max guy in 2019. Or if they take them off the books, then they can really start, you know, playing around with some of their money. And the late guarantee dates on uh, Jonas Jurebko and Epke Udo's uh, contracts really help out. I think it's July 9th, so they have some time to work with there. Yeah, and an earlier guarantee date is Tavo Cephalosha at $5.2 million. My projection is that they will not pick that up uh, with Cephalosha, the age that he's at, coming off of what exactly was his knee injury? Was it a, uh, like a really bad MCL? Yeah, I want to say something like that. I should probably know that, but I, I can't think of it off the top of my head. It was a knee injury, though. Yeah, it was in it was an avulsion of the MCL. Yeah, so it's basically like about as bad as an MCL. Usually, if it's grade one or two, you don't need surgery on that. So, especially with him in, in nearing his mid thirties now, I don't think they would want to pick that up, especially that early. So, but and Udo, you know, we'll see about him. They might need him if Favors moves on as a third center. Jarebko, 
had a poor playoffs but gave them something during the regular season as a stretch four option uh although he's he's a little bit more superfluous now with Crowder but uh, let's say that they're going to use the full mid-level or you know maybe they've got 15 million or so to work with if they decide to go in that direction who well what do you think this team needs first Liam that's probably the the better question well I wrote down their needs so obviously I think the bigger picture need is they they want to get that third star to pair with Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert now obviously that's easier to say than actually do but if we're if we're looking at you know smaller needs I, I think they need an upgrade at the stretch four like you said Urebko really struggled in the playoffs he, he wasn't able to stay on the floor they, they're going to play Crowder there a lot but you know I I think they'd like to do a little bit better in there so he can swing between the three and the four and not be such a focal point of the offense uh they could use some wing depth you know every team could uh they're pretty set at point guard with you know if if they do bring Exum back um they'll have and I assume they'll bring um Howell Neto back on a, on a cheap deal too so they'll have Re- Rubio Exum yeah. and Neto Neto a, a a restricted free agent but I think a guy who can play some adequate backup point guard minutes and, and maybe someone who would just be willing to just to take his qualifying offer uh, as well which would be under two million dollars right and, and less less positionally but you know something they really struggled with against the rockets if i you know it's going to be tough for them to compete against the rockets and the warriors in the playoffs but i you know assuming that's what they're building towards they they need to find more players who can beat switching defenses so i, I you know players that can you know beat a mismatch off the dribble iso a little bit more um a player i looked at you know that kind of fits that mold but I, I don't know how well he fits you know otherwise is a guy like will barton where maybe they could get him on the cheap you know something somebody that can beat their man off the dribble but then he'd probably be given a little bit back on the defensive end so you know, players like that that can you know help them in those specific warriors and rockets matchups because i think that's what their front office is going to be gearing towards beating yeah i would be surprised if they went for that kind of bench gunner type we've talked about this there's really when we talked about the wings there's really only four guys on the market that fall into that category of will barton tyreek evans Dwayne wade who i don't see coming to utah and then jamal crawford who also doesn't strike me as kind of a utah guy and i think this front office i don't see them making you know a three or four year commitment at the full mid level for someone like barton or evans and, and that might be what ends up being necessary I, I think that while it may be a little bit disappointing for jazz fans this could be a little bit of a consolidation year um one thing that has been discussed by David Locke, talked about it on Danny's podcast, uh, I think obviously Utah fans uh, have had an affinity for this player for a while, is the idea of Jabari Parker. And while waiting around for him in restricted free agency, we talked about why it's uh, unlikely that they would do that, that they'd create the amount of space for him. But perhaps if the Bucks are not interested in keeping Parker around at what his price tag is going to be, in theory, you've got Rudy Gobert behind him. Parker can certainly create shots there's obviously a massive injury risk and so his next contract there would have to in theory be some injury protections built into that but maybe a sign and trade for Jabari Parker would be something that the Jazz would consider what are you guys thoughts on that well I I I've obviously thought about you know going after Jabari Parker and you know restricted free agency but I've never really thought of the the sign I sign and trade idea like what what do you think the Jazz would give back in something like that well they not that much they wouldn't have to match salary Which is interesting. Right. They could, they would only, you know, they could. And so the Jazz have a lot of sweeteners, you know, maybe depending on who they're comfortable giving up, Royce O'Neal would be in- intriguing potentially as somebody else that they can sit like Tony Snell and get frustrated with that. But yeah, and, and, and like Jarebko sure. could be someone who might be able to help the Bucks, or, you know, maybe a, a first round pick could be involved. 
uh, as well. Yeah, I wouldn't anticipate you know, Rubio yeah. would be involved just because that doesn't that doesn't seem to really fit either team. Locke and I yeah. floated the idea of doing Exum for for Parker, which would be really <laughs> interesting. Right. I, I actually yeah, a double sign and trade, which is legal. It is legal. I actually yeah, thought well, of that I, for Aaron Gordon and Aaron Gordon and Dante Exum. I was I was toying with that idea, so I'm glad to know I'm not the only crazy one. You know, doing yeah. double sign oh, and trades. Can I throw a couple of other guys that I think are intriguing fits with the Jazz out there? So oh, yeah. one is Nemanja Bjelica. He might even just depending on the squeeze with the Wolves, if Glenn Taylor doesn't want to pay the tax, he might just be like on the outs there. A player who's more gettable than some yeah. people think. I think he'd be a wonderful we, fit. We talked about that in the Wolves. He, yes. He's got a pretty, he'll have a pretty high qualifying offer and they're up against the tax. So yeah, you could see him just being unrestricted. I, I like that. He, he would be a wonderful fit in utah and i don't think the price tag would be that high he's i think he's age 30 so could get could get into it a little bit on that kind of stretch 40 range anthony tolliver and mike scott i think could both be less perfect fits but still good there and then a guy that i like as i was running through fake you know fake off seasons for the jazz that i got more and more intrigued by as a fit with donovan mitchell not as necessarily the starter long term but just as a guy in the mix is seth curry Seth Curry can play on ball. He can play off ball. Not the greatest defensive combination, but let's say Curry is your third guard. That would open up some stuff offensively for them in some of these configurations that Quinn Snyder could go at. So maybe you go for more of a balance two as the primary guy next to Mitchell, and then you have Seth Curry as the guy who replaces that other one. I like that as a rotation. You know what else could be really interesting? Oh, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead, Liam. No, I was just going to agree with you. I mean, I'll let you make your point because there's another guy that I wanted to throw out there that you guys haven't mentioned yet, but I'll, I'll let you make your point first. Uh, this is just kind of an out there one, but you'll recall that the Jazz were rumored to be involved with Nikola Mirotic with the Bulls. Well, if the Pels bring back DeMarcus Cousins and decide that they need to clear out some space under the tax, and you'll recall that supposedly New Orleans didn't want to guarantee that team option for Mirotic, which, you know, that's a for 12.5 million is not bad but maybe you could see the jazz trying to get into acquiring Miritich. dennis Lindsay said you know it's no secret we need a 610 guy who can shoot three so that might just be something to keep your eye on if wait quick uh, new orleans gets into tax difficulty quick interjection i can't believe i didn't throw out the idea of a double sign and trade with the guy be going back to milwaukee being Derek favors that makes even more sense maybe than anything yeah they could use Derek favors they could use Derek Favors a lot. I actually thought about that as like a free agent destination for him, and then looking at their space, like it, it would be, it would have been hard to do. They could give him the mid level, but yeah, that makes a lot of sense for Milwaukee, I think. It, but yeah, what else were you going to suggest, Liam? Well, the guy I'm pretty intrigued by is, and I know he's not quite, you know, a great shooter, the type of you know typical stretch four you'd think the Jazz would want. But he he had a really good series against the Jazz. Is Jeremy Grant, where he's kind of like, you know, he's 23 now. He kind of fits on that timeline. If they could get him on a relatively cheaper deal, I know Oklahoma City's you know strapped for money right now, so they may not be able to retain him. And I I just thought he played really well in the playoff series. You know, really active, athletic guy. He would help with our you know help with the defense and you know the shooting it isn't quite there yet but at least uh, you know there's been progress on the offensive end for him so do, do you guys like that idea for them yeah i think getting some more athleticism it could be useful maybe they hope that they could teach him to shoot although you know a couple organizations have already tried it and failed at that but you know maybe he could reprise his role as a small ball center on the second unit and just you know, really he and gobert together would be a lot of athleticism to try and deal with defensively so yeah that that is an interesting one i have a couple other flyers glenn robinson the third if he's at a cheap price unrestricted free agent you know just as a another wing to kind of try in the mix and then patrick mccaw 
Macaw is limited in terms of his creation, but I actually think he could fit in with what Utah asks their perimeter players to do pretty well. And the asking price is probably not going to be super high. The Warriors might match, but he could be more of like a, hey, we have this money waiting, waiting through the rest of the market just drive up the price on somebody that we're competing with and make at the bare minimum make their luxury tax bill a little higher but i think he'd be a pretty good fit actually if the price isn't too high yeah i really love that idea um just i've been a huge pat mccall fan even since he came out from the draft and i think defensively you know he fits in pretty well you know a little switchier you know he's not you know that big so he might struggle with bigger players but a guy that can play a little bit off ball and on ball and like you said i think they could get him at a relatively decent price with uh, some of the warriors cap struggles um yeah, of all the guys that have been mentioned so far, I think Bielitsa is the one that fits the best. I think, like, as a four-man who can attack off the bounce, hit threes, he's really, they love to run pick and roll. Bielitsa can run pick and roll. You know, he really was underutilized. They can help out with his defensive limitations because they've got Gobert behind him. I think that would be really just an awesome fit. Uh, and, I mean, so much depends, of course, on how much space they're going to have. Let's return to, the, uh, to Exum now here. What do you think? So let's say you're Utah and we've seen this dynamic a lot with restricted free agents of kind of hey you know what we're gonna make you an offer here now that we think should be good enough to kind of keep you out of restricted free agency but you know and restricted free agency is a crapshoot for both team and player right if there's it's high risk high reward if you get that offer sheet that offer sheet is almost calculated to overpay but otherwise the guy can really languish we saw that happen with Nerlens Noel for example last year uh so what would your offer be to them, Liam, or, or to Dante Exum to try and, you know, this is a reasonable offer. We think you should sign it to keep you out of really going to solicit an offer sheet and restricted free agent. Well, I think they got to approach it from two different ways, depending on what they're doing with favors. So if they're, if they're going to hold on to favors and keep his cap hold, then they really don't have any space to work with anyway. So they, they can play the waiting game and wait out restricted free agency. If if they're not going to, you know, retain favors, then there becomes, you know, Dante Exum's side gets a little bit more leverage in the negotiation because it's uh, one of those rare cases where there's a, you know, top NBA draft pick. He's not worth his cap hold, but obviously I think the Jazz are obviously interested in retaining him with some of the, you know, he showed some flashes late in the season. So my idea w- would have been, um, would be a, a two plus one deal with a player option on, on the last year to Dante Exum for about I don't know eighteen to twenty one million a year would be the Jazz's offer and see if he might take that eighteen to twenty one million a no, year you mean uh, total. yeah sorry total so about like six I or mean, seven. I mean maybe they really like him I don't know yeah. no so it'd be like six or seven mil a year it would give you know Dante you know a little bit of security and it would only be you know you'd have the option of getting out back on the free agency in the third year. So I don't, I don't know, maybe Dante's thinking he deserves more than that, but yeah, I mean, he doesn't really have the resume there. I mean, he's been injured for two full seasons, basically, hasn't been very productive. You know, he shows flashes and potential of being a good player, but I, I don't know. Do you think that would be an offer you'd be interested in at all? Well, yeah, I, I'm not sure what the alternative is necessarily. And I mean, I think uh, that's a reasonable structure to me of, hey, you know what, if you really blow up here in a couple of years were and maybe you would go a little bit higher like to the eight or nine million per season range uh just because it's a a short-term deal like that and maybe you could go higher annual value but maybe get something that's more team friendly like a a team option or a non-guarantee 
on the last year or some type of injury protection with his knees something like or, that or what uh, the but, what the cat what the clippers did with milos tedosic which is a player option that is not fully guaranteed or that could fully vest actually harden i think had something kind of like that on his previous deal where certain qualifications could increase the guarantee on that last year yeah if they're going to do the player option that there could only really be a two-year deal uh there otherwise they would have to have two non-guaranteed years on the oh, end oh that's right they have to do the thing they would have to do the thing where they make the first year non-guaranteed, but it like guarantees the day after you sign it, basically. So it essentially is guaranteed. Um, but, you know, I, I mean, I think that's where he gets a little bit something, life-changing money. He's already made some decent money here being the fifth overall pick. And, you know, if things, if he really blows up, then he can get out on the market again. You know, it'll still only really be 24, it's 22 right now. So I, I think that would be relatively fair you know, I, I'm be fascinated to see where it ends with him and, and what they think of him because you know, I think he's a guy who has a lot of potential. I mean, his first step is unbelievable. He's got some nice passing vision. His defense, he showed a lot of potential guarding James Harden, for example, in the playoffs, but also his off-the-bound shooting and decision-making really are lacking, as is the health. So he's got a lot of potential, but also a, a guy who could just end up being a career backup as well. You never know. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, can I ask you a, a little bit of a larger question as it relates to their 2019 plans? Yeah, sir. Um, well, I was just wondering if we've mentioned that they have you know up to 48 million in cap space for 2019, and, and you know I I've heard for a long time you know no no free agents are going to come to Utah. Is it realistic for them to really think that they can get you know a max you know quality player in 2019 because if they can't then that kind of you know affects their plans going into this year they don't really need to save it up as much but i was taking a look at the players that are going to be available in free agency next year and the players that like you know peak you know seemed interesting to me from from a jazz perspective were Kyrie, clay you know Kawhi leonard chris middleton uh harrison barnes kevin love those types of players and those aren't like the necessarily like you know all well Kawhi is but those might not be like top tier all nba type guys but I, I i'm just wondering if like you think the jazz have a real shot at any of those guys and obviously it's you know tough to project what guys are interested in but they'd have a pretty good core going forward they'd have i think under contract for that year they'd still have gobert mitchell ingles um crowder and royce o'neill so they'd have like five pretty good players already and they'd have the cap space so w- would that be an attractive situation for a star player yeah there are some more teams that are going to have space in 2019 than this year but i i think so i mean like middleton i think is someone that they would be extremely interested in uh and so i i think it's basically you just got to go from year to year if there's someone that you think is a great value that can be a part of this core going forward that's a starter you know i don't think that i would say hey you know what we can't sign this guy that we think could be a starter on this team going forward because we got to preserve for 2019 you know and maybe they could even get a player like that on a, a good tradable deal going forward but i just i don't see because they're a pretty deep team in particular i don't really see the guy this year that i even would want to commit starter money to so i think it just it, it kind of makes more sense to run this team back find out what you have in donovan mitchell see if he is going to be a point guard or a shooting guard you can get an idea of that as well try to bring in one more rookie with your draft pick see how he develops and then you can you know i think jabari is someone who's interesting uh and this would be a perfect situation for him i think but you kind of or an aaron gordon would make a lot of sense too so maybe you explore those routes in terms of like a potential sign and trade so i you know you're never any team that's trying to get a guy as a free agent 
it's always a questionable high-risk strategy right so you know i don't know whether what the appeal is for utah really uh, as far as like a market but good teams that have a lot of cap space now you could say maybe utah doesn't get to the second round next year maybe they're not as uh, as appealing but uh mitchell i think is only going to get better and playing with he and gobert and and having those guys as a core it should be pretty decent so i think they should feel as good about their chances as you know anywhere other than you know like the lakers or something like that or philly or something like that i'll draw a line of distinction between the like the big stars like you've defined it before as like the superstars and above average starters like i think it's going to be hard for them to get like an all nba type player just because the the inexorable nature of the nba is that if a player wants to go to a specific place it'll just happen i mean we could see that with guys getting traded or or numerous other things between now jimmy butler might kind of be the borderline guy depending on what happens in minnesota maybe he sees that as a sees salt lake city is a better opportunity but of those kind of above the above average starters like tobias harris middleton harrison barnes all those guys are in their their mid-20s i could see any of them being a player that would make the jazz significantly better and would be absolutely gettable so no i don't think Kawhi is going there i'm not going to write it off but i i wouldn't expect it but they could still get guys that would really really help and fit in pretty well with their overall timeline as well with mitchell and gobert still having a couple more years under contract all right let's do a a, a quick read here and uh then we can wrap up uh, this segment on the utah jazz donovan mitchell was unbelievable in the playoffs that dunk what it would have must have been like to be there in person that tip dunk that he had in game two certainly uh some of our colleagues really enjoyed that uh judging by uh what they look like in the video uh, from that baseline camera angle but if you want to go see nba basketball or anything else in person seat geek is the way to do it they save you time and they save you money seat geek saves you time by aggregating ticket sites together and then they also rank every ticket based on value so you look at the general area you want to sit in look for that big green dot and you can get some awesome deals now you don't have to compare with oh this seat is 10 rows back but it's ten dollars cheaper you know which which one is a better value seat geeks algorithms can help you out with that the way to get started with them and to get twenty dollars off your first seat geek purchase is to download the seat geek app and enter the promo code capspace easy room we've been talking about that this entire time here in the Utah Jazz offseason preview, that's promo code CAPSPACE with the SeatGeek app. Let them know with that CAPSPACE code that you came from us. Anyone else that you think would be a good fit for this team that we haven't discussed yet uh, as a potential free agent addition? Yeah, there was one guy, but I don't know if he's going to opt out of his player option. Uh, Thaddeus Young is interesting to me. Just I, I feel like he'd be a better fit than favors at the at power forward he's not you know a good three-point shooter but he adds a little bit more stretch to his game you know a little bit more switchable can guard out on the perimeter a little bit more but he's you know what 30 now and you know any any long-term money that you're giving him you know he's gonna probably gonna get worse every year so i i have worries about that you know just as far as you know the timeline of rudy gobert and donovan mitchell i think gobert is gonna be 26 this summer and mitchell is 21 so i don't know if he fit that timeline but he was a guy that was interesting to me yeah i wouldn't expect him to opt out uh, necessarily but we'll see of course in indiana certainly if utah wanted to throw a, a big money contract at him he might consider that and certainly as a switchable defensive player but you mentioned the, the age uh just one more awesome shooter on this team might be nice too uh wayne ellington was someone that danny had mentioned i thought he could be a, a decent fit what about uh davis bertons do you think they could pry him away from the spurs probably uh, he might be a guy that they would would think about uh but you know he is an 
a restricted free agent, but the Spurs may be involved in those. We saw them let Jonathan Simmons go for a larger offer last year so that's a possibility he's someone that maybe they could look to develop into that stretch for that they're looking for though really i mean when you look at who this team is trying to get better to compete with houston and golden state some of these guys like if you can't switch i'm just not really interested in you for this team at this point you know unless you're just a backup center or something i think that's fair it's just you know it, like everybody in the league knows like it, it's hard to find those guys that are you know switchable defensively and can still you know stay on the floor offensively so I don't know they're, they're going to be hard you know struggle to find that I think they're going to have to try and if they want to get a defensive guy like that they're going to have to take a chance on a guy and hope that he you know improves his shooting when, when they don't have you know a track record of shooting a guy like Jeremy Grant or Luke Richard and Bob Mute is going to be a free agent so they could go after somebody like that but you know it's, it's hard to find quality two-way players so they're probably going to have to choose you know one side of you know one-way players you know at the price they're going to be looking at you know who actually could be a decent fit here that we didn't even mention yet isaiah thomas oh <laughs> I, I don't know about that i mean i mean they have ricky rubio under contract next year as as a bench guy as a bench guy as a, as a score you know what i mean i think like they don't they have a lot of depth so they don't need him right away uh he had a lot of success in a boston system that's kind of similar to what utah runs and he can give him some instant offense now he may have better offers available but i think they could put him and especially you've got gobert behind him i think you could use him and he could put you or, or they could put him in the best possible position to succeed is your issue that he just would be too bad defensively no i actually i actually like the idea of the jazz going after you know a guy that's you know gives them more offense and is a defensive liability i think that's part of the value of gobert is that you can put you know a weak link out there defensively and yeah he's going to hurt you but at least you're still going to be pretty good defensively with gobert on the floor i think my bigger problem is i just with the age and the injury i just wonder if you're going to get the same isaiah thomas you know that that you saw in boston yeah, but but it's we're talking about a one-year deal here that's we're talking about a make good one-year deal you know and it could even be you know what would be an interesting model for thomas would be the contract that andrew bynum got uh back in i think it was 2013-14 where he basically had like six million guaranteed out of his 12 million and then just wasn't really able to come back with the Cavs and ended up getting traded and letting the bulls get under the luxury tax and the luol deng deal but that might be something where hey you know what we'll give you it's kind of like what richard sherman got in football too we'll give you some money here just so you get something this year we'll let you rehab in our system and you know we'll have half of your salary guarantee at the guarantee date and if you're not back and you're not playing well by that point we can cut you but you'll still have gotten some money otherwise you know maybe you're playing well enough that we'll keep you around well i mean that is an interesting concept that is the way you do it i guess my concern would be and i think it's a good idea depending on the contract and the money you know part of it and you know it's impossible for us to know this type of stuff but just like the chemistry stuff like this some of the stuff that happened with isaiah in cleveland wasn't exactly encouraging as far as you know his self-awareness and you know his ability to fit into a team where he's not going to be the guy and he wouldn't be the guy with this utah team so i i wonder how we'd adjust to going back to a bench role i mean it'd be tough to play him in closing lineups where, where i think you would want mitchell yeah. to have the ball so no it, well it's all it, it would all just be you know maybe his options would just be that limited you know i think that's really what it's more this would be kind of a later summer contract maybe favors ends up leaving they don't find anyone that they really like that much better um i don't know anything else you want to say on these guys danny before we wrap up on these guys no but can i plug some things uh absolutely so uh, my 
Sixers offseason preview is up. We will talk about them at some point on Dunked On. Lots of different angles on that. It was actually one of the longer ones. I think it's over 1,500 words. That's at The Athletic. My report cards is what it's called. The the analysis that I do for Warriors Rockets is up also at The Athletic. That's available on their app. And then my offseason previews are going to roll in full steam after tomorrow. Tomorrow's going to be a pretty eventful NBA day because not only do we have Celtics Cavs game two, but the draft lottery. And so some of those previews have been held back because of that. And the tentative plan right now, and correct me if I'm wrong, of course, is that we are not going to do like kind of a Twitter NBA show live thing for that, partially because the timing of the lottery thing is so weird. But we will, of course, do the game in full for the Twitter NBA show. Uh, let me ask you guys this question before we go. What one result are you guys most want to see in the lottery? I, I'd really like to see uh, the Mavs win the lottery just because I, I really like, you know, when Rick Carlisle has some talent to work with. And I think it'd be really interesting to see. I don't know who they'd take, but like if it was Donkic with uh, Dennis Smith and, you know, it'd be nice to see the Mavs kind of build up some young talent. But I don't have like a strong opinion on it either way. Oh, I have one. The, it goes the the order goes and and Nate was sitting next to me last year when we watched the lottery results and I went a ballistic in exactly the same way. So if it goes Denver Clippers Clippers Charlotte New York because what that means is that the number ten pick which previously belonged to the Lakers goes up and then we won't know for like ten minutes whether it's going to Boston because it's two or three or it's going to the Sixers because improbably it's the number one overall pick that would be absolutely insane and and but anything that leads to players that make sense with other NBA guys like you know I'd like to see Doncic and Dennis Smith together I think that would be a lot of fun there are a lot of them but that one would be the single craziest one for the scope of the league whether that player is kept or traded by whoever gets that pick all right well we'll of course be back tomorrow night to talk about the lottery results thanks so much for listening and we will talk to y'all next time till then thanks so much to candid for sponsoring today's program they make the process of straightening your teeth convenient and easy customized clear liners sent directly to your home and they cost 65 percent less than braces their network of highly trained orthodontists reviews each and every case and directs the entire aligner plan for you i've been really impressed already with the quality of their services my fiance has just started using them now make sure that you use my dedicated link candidco candidco.com slash that'll save you 25 percent on your modeling kit that's candidco candidco.com slash to get 25 percent off the price of your modeling kit candidco candidco.com slash cap space.